welcome to the National Press Club and today's Westpac Address. I'm Catherine Murphy, the political editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm also a director of the club. I'd like to begin today by acknowledging the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngambri and Ngunnawal people, past and present. Now, turning to today's proceedings. This morning on ABC Radio, one of our guests posed a really profound question. She asked, do Aboriginal lives matter? That's the focus of our address today. We're going to be considering the scourge of violence in Indigenous communities. Now, the problem is stark if we look at the data. Uh, it tells us that Indigenous women are up to 35 times more likely to experience domestic and family violence. The Productivity, also, pro, sorry, the Productivity Commission also tells us that uh, Indigenous women and girls are 31 times more likely to be hospitalised due to domestic and family violence assaults. Today we have three guests to discuss this really important issue. Uh, Marcia Langton is an anthropologist. Uh, since 2000, she's held the Foundation Chair of uh, Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. Jacinta Price is an elected member of the Alice Springs Council and she's an acclaimed singer-songwriter. Uh, Josephine Cashman is a lawyer, a businesswoman, a social entrepreneur and a member of the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council. Now, for this important conversation, I know people are watching on at home and watching on online, and I know a number of people would like to be involved in the conversation, and you certainly can. If you're a Twitter person, our hashtag is NPC, and our handle is at PressClubOst, A-U-S-T. So throw in your comments that way, and I'll try and have a look at them over the course of the address. But without further ado, please join me in welcoming Jacinta Price to kick off. Thank you, and I would like to also acknowledge the traditional owners and their elders past and present. Before I begin today, I also want to acknowledge that I would not be here without the support of my family and my husband in particular, who encourages me to always speak the truth. As many have been aware, Australian citizens are dying at alarmingly high rates because of family violence. These Australian citizens are Aboriginal women and their children. And they are the most marginalised. Many of you are aware of the statistics following the police commissioner's report. And there are those of us who have known for a very long time that the Aboriginal family violence crisis has been playing out for far too long, and yet it has not been addressed properly. I have known about this crisis all my life. I recall an incident at Christmas time in my family home when I was about nine years old. The husband of a woman in my family became violent and aggressive after consuming alcohol. He and the woman began to argue as they both became intoxicated. It escalated to the point where my father ordered the man to leave our family home. As he left, he took a fistful of his 18-month-old son's hair and lifted him by his scalp 
until his arm was fully extended to the side of his body. He flung the toddler about in front of us all, including his three-year-old daughter. He threatened to kill his son if his wife continued to disobey him. I remember the blank look in the boy's eyes. He didn't cry out. He just dangled silently from his hair. My parents acted swiftly to call the police to have the man arrested. However, following this incident, there were many more incidents, including one where he broke his wife's jaw, another two when he put her in ICU, and on one of those occasions, she was close to death. Despite this, she went on to have a child with him, even after knowing what her stepchildren had endured. In fact, she stayed with him until the day he hanged himself. She was the one to find his body. She has since looked after her mother-in-law in fear that her in-laws will blame her for his death. As traditionally, a wife is often blamed for the death of her husband. In fact, I have known of cases of women being ordered to submit sexually to male relatives of the deceased husband for not fulfilling the correct duties of a wife, which is to take care of her husband even if he is a perpetrator. I could spend days giving examples of acts of family violence that I have witnessed or come to learn within my own family in remote communities, where I am related to both the victim and the perpetrator, and where the kinship network demands loyalty to your family members even if they are perpetrators. One is expected to pretend that these perpetrators are decent human beings and ignore the fact that they have committed acts of physical and sexual violence against those you love. Because to speak out, to speak the truth, is to create conflict. So from early in life, everyone learns to lie to keep the peace. Which manifests into child and youth suicide and the continuation of a destructive cycle. I've just given a glimpse of examples of violence that some Aboriginal women experience. The number of deaths due to homicide that have impacted my family are in the hundreds. And in the, in the Northern Territory alone, for many Aboriginal families, this number is in the thousands. But this epidemic is not only occurring in remote areas, but within urban Aboriginal communities as well. The code of silence that victims live in blankets both remote and urban Australia. In remote communities, traditional culture is shrouded in secrecy, which allows perpetrators to control their victims. Culture is used as a tool by perpetrators in defence of their violent crimes or as an excuse or reason to perpetrate. But as myself, Marcia and Josephine continue to highlight, this is not acceptable. It is not acceptable 
that any human being have their human rights violated, denied and utterly disregarded in the name of culture. It is a national shame that in our recent history, Aboriginal male perpetrators have got away with their crimes based on the argument that they were acting within their culture's confines. Other excuses include that Aboriginal men themselves are victims of colonisation and dispossession, and therefore we must empathise with them and excuse their violent behaviour. It is apparently far more important not to offend than it is to speak honestly about Australian citizens being killed in this country. Aboriginal researcher who is here, to, here today, Susan Ingram, made the point in her article last month that, I quote, in the 70s, some female Aboriginal leaders decided that standing as a people was far more important than signing up for the mainstream feminist agenda. 40 years later, Aboriginal women still face pressure to prioritise racial solidarity, to act as solidarity stewardesses serving a sophisticated silencing agenda, rather than speak up about domestic abuse within their own communities." Unquote. We have recently been made aware of Marlene Cummins' story and her experience in the Aboriginal Black Panther Party. She believed she had to sacrifice her rights as a woman for the greater good of a movement she felt would benefit all Aboriginal people. So she remained silent when she suffered sexual and physical abuse at the hands of Aboriginal men. Unfortunately, within Aboriginal Australia, the remnants of the ideology to stand in solidarity with your people and to remain silent on internal abuse is still deeply ingrained. It exists within communities where men regarded as elders have been known to abuse their power by perpetrating physical and sexual violence while their family and their close circles support them. In fact, often they will support them to the point where they will even appear alongside the perpetrator in court to intimidate and threaten the victims and the victim's female supporters. And we see this happen even in cases where there is proven to have been years of sexual abuse of a child. Everybody in this country must condemn this kind of vile behaviour. It must not be tolerated. These abhorrent acts of blatantly threatening behaviour toward a young victim and her female supporters are examples of exactly what Aboriginal women and children are hard up against. Would we sit back and allow the supporters of the Catholic Church to behave this way toward victims of child sexual abuse by men of the cloth? No. We actively and openly condemn these acts without fear of the politically correct labelling us and without fear of the families and supporters of the church threatening us with violent retaliation. And no more can we silence our fellow non-Aboriginal Australians who stand by us on the issue despite calls for their silence simply because they are not Aboriginal. 
The concern for Aboriginal women and children should be everyone's concern. And we as a country should be able to address this issue. Because only when we take full responsibility can we bring about solutions to this epidemic. We cannot solve these problems alone and the women and the children who are the most marginalised in this country need all the support they can get. Before I finish, I would like to add that I've been placed under immense pressure to withhold some of what I've spoken about today. What I have shared may put my immediate family at risk of retaliation of violence and the possibility that employment opportunities may be impacted. Some close to me have also expressed their concerns. But why am I standing here if not to hold us all to account for the lack of responsibility, action and justice for these Aboriginal women and children and the thousands of victims of family violence and sexual abuse? Why? Am I standing here if not to prevent yet another funeral of a family member victim of homicide? The NT's local newspapers on a weekly basis are riddled with stories of family violence and homicide. And I become part of the problem if I do not speak out. I have found, however, that as I stand in defiance of years of violence and silence, I continue to gain the support of Aboriginal men in my family, in my community and across this country who understand that family violence is wrong. I am witnessing more Aboriginal women come forward and breaking their silence knowing they have the support to do so. So I call upon the federal, state and territory governments to take this matter more seriously to ensure the safety of Aboriginal women and children by upholding their human rights. I call upon the federal government to do what has been done in light of Aboriginal youth in detention and hold a royal commission into the countless homicides, acts of violence and sexual abuse perpetrated against this country's most marginalised. We have all been made aware and must start to address the reality of the crisis that has been played out for far too long so that real change may finally take place. Thank you. Marcia Langton. Thank you, Jacinta. Ladies and gentlemen, I acknowledge the traditional owners and you. Thank you for listening. You will hear many more accounts of the violence suffered by Aboriginal women and children. The data and our own experiences tell us that we are confronting rates of violence that seem beyond explanation. In 2014, the National Indigenous Intelligence Task Force of the Australian Crime Commission reported to the Australian Government 
in an astonishing, rigorous set of reports on violence and child abuse in the Indigenous population. And Josephine will have more to say about this. This report has never been released except under a Freedom of Information application and our copy is heavily redacted. Further, we have more details on this violence from open sources such as the Overcoming Indigenous Disadvantage report of the Productivity Commission or OID which was released early this morning and as well the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. In the last reporting period, 2014-15, almost a quarter of the entire Indigenous Australian population over the age of 15 reported that they had been victims of physical or threatened violence in the last 12 months. Indigenous females, as you've heard from Catherine, were 32 times as likely to have been hospitalised as non-Indigenous females from 2011 to June 2013, and the 1% drop is not statistically significant. Um, I won't go into all of the OID's um, statistical magic uh, and qualifications, but in any case, uh, this, this hospitalisation rate uh, is solely for family violence-related assaults. Um, and it increases in remote areas. So I know, for instance, from the Nganadara Pijinjara Yankanjajara Women's Council that the homicide rate of women in their area is 80 times the national figure. Um, <clears throat> Indigenous males were eight times as likely to have been hospitalised for assault as non-Indigenous males. Indigenous hospitalisation rates for, for assault were highest in remote and very remote areas, 28 and 23 per 1,000 respectively, compared with 4 per 100,000 in major cities. So the hospitalisation for assault of Indigenous females in remote areas and this is a national figure, 63 times that for non-Indigenous women. In 2014-15, the uh, hospitalisation and assaults for family violence uh, rates were highest in the Northern Territory compared to other jurisdictions at 62 times the rate of the rest of the country. There were 192 Indigenous deaths in 2010-14 due to assault. Now, I just want to say that these figures are on the low side. We know, I know from my own experience with the Crime Commission that many of the deaths are not reported and many of the assaults are not reported. And more about that later. The mortality rate for assault for Indigenous Australians was around seven times the rate of non-Indigenous Australians. And the largest number and rate of these were in the Northern Territory followed by South Australia. But statistics have a way of lying. These statistics have been flattened out to reflect a national picture that belies the reality in the thousands of 
remote and rural Indigenous populations across Australia. The Bill Leake cartoon involving complaints under Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act has exposed many of the fault lines in the Indigenous population's response to antisocial behaviour by Indigenous men. His cartoon showed an Aboriginal child being handed back to a police officer to an apparently drunk father who could not remember his son's name. Thousands of people claimed that this was a racist stereotype and that they were offended by it. Well, it's not satire and it's quite ugly and it's not helpful, um, but let's look beyond that. Aboriginal social media activists took to Twitter under the hashtag Indigenous Dads, posting family snapshots of Indigenous fathers and their children. By my count, there were about 70 living fathers. Many other happy snaps showed adult children with their deceased fathers. But where are the other Indigenous dads? As much as their love for their fathers is honourable and admirable, it must be said that these lucky children of decent Aboriginal men miss the point. According to ABS figures, there are an estimated 744,956 Indigenous Australians representing 3% of the total Australian population. So where are the other 200,000 or so Indigenous fathers and what are they like? Well, let's turn to the data. Just under 10,000 of them are serving time in prison for acts intended to cause injury, sexual assault and a range of other crimes. This represents about 27% of the Australian prison population. Where are their children? Well, about 3,000 of them are neglected or have been removed from their families to protect them. At 30th of June 2015, sorry, that was 30,000, I'll say that again, about around 30,000 of them are neglected or have been removed from their families to protect them. Almost 17,000 were under care and protection orders. A further 15,500 were in out-of-home care. In 2014-15, Indigenous children were seven times as likely to be receiving child protection services as non-Indigenous children. So there were about 12,000 Indigenous children in this period with substantiated not notifications. That's the highest reporting of, highest level of reporting of the need for child protection. And again, remember that these figures are on the low side because of the fear gripping the Indigenous community that prevents them from reporting assault, rape, neglect and other crimes. Now, this is the information I received this week from the Brisbane Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community Health Service, which runs 18 clinics in southeast Queensland with a, another opening next year. The clients in this cohort have attended our clinics, had a health check and been referred on to our social health team. In a four-month period, 64% of 437 vulnerable clients seeking treatment for mental health or drug and alcohol issues in three Aboriginal medical clinics in southeast Queensland were found to have conditions or injuries resulting from domestic violence. 64%. So this variance of the clinic data from the national figures gives us a hint of the levels of underreporting. 
Further, the Productivity Commission tells us that the data on people seeking assistance from specialist homelessness services um, is at about one in four, with around 23% of this group seeking assistance for domestic violence. 67% of Indigenous children in out-of-home care have been placed in accordance with the Aboriginal child placement principle. And that's the only good news out of that data. Uh, the, the Commission did report two case studies that work to improve outcomes, the Alice Springs Domestic and Family Violence Outreach Service and the UNDAMU Mediation and Justice Committee, both in the Northern Territory. But Deputy Chair Karen Chester said if we are to see improvements in outcomes, we need to know which policies work and why, but the overwhelming lack of robust public evaluation of programs highlights the imperative for Indigenous policy evaluation. Now, in that period, uh, well, well, since the last uh, reporting period, the rate of Indigenous children subject of uh, the subject of child protection substantiations increased 10%, while for the rest of the population it increased only 1%. And we see the same rates for care and protection orders and out-of-home care. There is a growing network of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and men who want to tackle this rising tide of violence and disintegration of our families. And thank you to all of you who turned up here today from so many parts of the country. We have formed an informal network and meet by teleconference monthly, organise events, support each other and share information. We are each experts in particular areas and have recognised that the accelerating levels of violence against Indigenous women and children represent the most dangerous threat to the health and wellbeing of Indigenous Australians, as the data shows. The information we share is aimed at putting together an accurate picture of this disaster and policy and program reforms in policing, court, social security, child protection and health that will be effective and evidence-based to support the thousands of victims and change the behaviour of the thousands of perpetrators. My colleague Josephine Cashman will tell you about the glaring failure of this third action plan to reduce violence against women and their children launched in Brisbane at the COAG summit. So it recommends that cases of violence against Indigenous women and children uh, be dealt with uh, through case-managed support for families and encourage behavioural change without resorting to police or courts. Indigenous women who are involved in ending the violence against us are asking this question. Why would the third National Action Plan make this recommendation? What about the rule of law, so highly valued by all major political parties and the bedrock of Australian society? I am calling it drinking the Kool-Aid. The no doubt sincere and well-meaning people who wrote the third action plan and people I have met in governments with key responsibilities in this area have been told by some Aboriginal leaders that these levels of violence and abuse are quote, cultural. And yet, when I ask them what they mean, they have no answers. What do the Aboriginal leaders mean when they give us this deadly advice? They are referring, in my view, to a new version <coughs> of Aboriginal culture 
that keeps a few elements of the older culture and adds a new set of dangerous elements. The worst of which is the rule of women and children by older men using force, assault, forced detention, capital and corporal punishment, and sexual assault of both adults and children, all of which was covered by the Australian Crime Commission report, and all illegal under Australian laws. If these practices were traditional laws, there would be no Aboriginal society in existence today. If we look at the Indigenous homicide rates, assault and hospitalisation rates, incarceration rates, rates of removal of Aboriginal children, we see a rapidly disintegrating society. This is not the society of old. We are witnessing the Stockholm Syndrome writ large by Indigenous perpetrators and their victims, and their governments and agency partners, explaining this horrible situation as a matter of culture. The irony that this is the most racist of all stereotypes, so much worse than Bill Leake's cartoon of an Aboriginal man asking the police officer for his son's name, seems to be completely lost on them. To make these observations is to break ranks with the Kool-Aid Brigade. Insults are hurled at us for deserting our brothers. Far from it. We have long recommended effective programs for changing the lives of domestic violence perpetrators for their sake and for the sake of the victims. Charlie King's No More campaign in the Northern Territory is the most effective program with reach into the Aboriginal world. In the community of Ramanginning in Arnhem Land, his program reduced violence rates by 70%. We also want more support for the victims who are routinely ignored in the urban, fashionable rush to perpetrator behavioural change programs. Several reforms were announced at COAG, a national domestic violence order scheme, a national information sharing system and the development of national perpetrator standards. All well and good, but don't hold your breath. We believe that much more is needed for the Indigenous victims so that they have integrated and effective support during the regular crises, episodes of violence and community mayhem from which they need safe haven. We are agreed that there should be a national task force of highly qualified Indigenous women and men appointed to it to identify the programs and policies that work and that are most urgent and to oversee implementation. No one has a chance of closing the gap on any disadvantage in our communities without putting a stop to the violence against Indigenous women and children. Thank you. And our final contributor today is Josephine Cashman. Thank you. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners and I'd like to um, thank the Centre for Independent Studies for helping us have this event. If it wasn't for their support, we we wouldn't be here today. And I want to acknowledge Auntie Kalita and Uncle Mick, because I'm going to talk about some examples from Wallaga Lake, and Auntie Kalita's actually from Wallaga Lake community, which is only four hours from here. But I'll first off start about talk about my journey on the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council, when three years ago I was asked, I felt immensely privileged, but yet I shouldered immense responsibility this responsibility has followed me throughout my childhood. It followed me into the work which I did at Wallaga in health and as a senior solicitor in Arnhem Land. And most recently it followed me to Geneva where earlier this year I was invited to address the full 
United Nations Human Rights Council in a historic session on violence against Indigenous women. My interest in community safety came after living at Wallaga Aboriginal community in the late 1990s. And as I said, it's not far from here. It's, it's a beautiful area. I worked there in my early 20s as a trainee at a local Aboriginal medical service. During this time, the prevalence of child sexual assault and domestic violence came very apparent to me. There were, were at least two serial child sex offenders in the community who, throughout their lives, have wreaked, wreaked havoc and severely traumatised many community members. These criminals are responsible for raping children and destroying their futures. They got away with their crimes, as in this community, like many others, because of an environment where pedophilia and extreme violence goes unreported. This culture of silence allows criminals to gain power over communities and establish unfettered access to children through fear, which perpetrates, perpetrates a misguided tolerance of criminal behaviour. Within this culture of silence, the police are the enemy, and anyone who reports or talks to them is called a dog and a snitch for collaborating with the white authority. Victims who report violence and rape often find that the police responses range from slow to non-existence. They also fear that police will not follow through with their complaints, leaving them exposed to further violence and payback, risking becoming homeless and reprisals from family members of offenders who are usually, as you've heard from Jacinta, codependent in supporting their criminal offending behaviour. The Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission's final report of the National Indigenous Intelligence Task Force, a study from 2006 to 2014, found that Indigenous children remain at a greater risk of being abused. In some remote communities, they found that every person has reported being affected by child sexual abuse as a victim, a perpetrator, or a relative of either. Violence in these communities is extreme. It's normalised. It escalates rapidly and often involves weapons. Domestic violence is widely tolera tolerated and increasingly involves younger couples. Children in many remote communities are exposed to violence and to the extent and severity of partner rape and sexual assault almost remains, certainly remains hidden. There is a clear link, the Crime Commission found, between suicide, self-harm, and associated alcohol and substance abuse and domestic violence relationship breakdowns and early life trauma from child abuse. Service providers and community members are limited in their ability to address mental health issues and identify children at risk because of the alcohol and substance abuse and they do not have the tools to respond appropriately. 
It was an adult victim of child sexual assault at Wallaga, Lucy, that was a catalyst for me leaving the New South Wales South Coast with my infant child to start a journalism and law degree in Sydney. I naively thought that becoming a journalist would provide me with unfettered opportunities to expose the uncomfortable truths of the suffering of Aboriginal men, women and children in our country. Lucy had six children and was a good mother. Though every time she had a baby, she suffered from chronic post-traumatic stress, depression, drank excessively and did not cope. I was informed that as a child, Lucy had been repeatedly raped by a distant relative. Yet, yet she didn't feel she could tell anyone about this. She drank to block out the horrific truth that she lived in a community where the offender walks freely and unchallenged. Were she to report him, she ran the risk of becoming homeless. His family, including female relatives, would have threatened her own safety and that of her children. Lucy rang the local medical service every day, requesting that someone visit her newborn baby. With no transport to go to the local doctors, I went straight to her house on the reserve. The infant was white with red spots all over her face. I knew that was something was wrong as the parents had a dark brown complexion. I rang the local nurse and the local doctor came straight away. But the baby died two days later of a heart murmur. Before my visit, visit most of Lucy's calls had been ignored. She'd been dismissed as a troubled drunk. I had challenged this at an AGM of the Aboriginal Medical Service I worked for and spoke of my disappointment over the death of Lucy's baby. My boss's response was to pick up a chair and throw it at my head because he thought I was blaming him. Within two weeks I'd enrolled in university and committed my life to amplifying the voices of people like Lucy and working with other Aboriginal women and men to bring about a chance for justice and peace for future generations. At Wallaga Lake, I witnessed daily domestic violence and it was not uncommon at night to hear women's screams throughout the community. Aboriginal men in this community thought they were weak if they did not control their girlfriends or wives and saw women as objects to control. These men did not grow up with good role models. They lived in fear that their peers would see them as weak if they did not put women in their place by means of jealousy, threats, the use of weapons, put-downs and public humiliation. What created this, in my view, was a lack of support for women, children and the rule of law, which is reflected in Australia's worsening statistics for Indigenous incarceration suicide and child removals. The empowerment, and there are some people who are, who've got, who are on the right track in terms of policy. The empowerment of women and girls is embedded throughout Australia's foreign policy, economic diplomacy, and the overseas aid programs. 
DFAT has a very comprehensive process when it comes to aid programs, as gender equity must be integrated throughout the programs. DFAT's um, women's empowerment strategy sets out principles that guides their work and oversees aid programs. At a minimum, DFAT aims to avoid exacerbating gender equalities and ensure that men and women benefit from its interventions equally. DFAT seeks to enhance women's voices in decision-making, leadership and peace-building. And at least 80% of its aid programs, investors need to actually demonstrate real progress in addressing gender equity issues. If we, as Australians, can write these provisions into our foreign policy programs, why can't we do the same for Indigenous affairs programs? I was surprised when I was advised by a senior government figure that funding agreements with Aboriginal organisations should be linked... I, advi I advised him that I thought they should be linked to a minimum number of women on their boards and compulsory training on minimum standards of behaviour for community-controlled organisations. So I made this recommendation as an advisor on the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council. He said that would not work because it's not cultural. I wonder whose culture he was referring to. Because this brink dismissal of my suggestion does nothing but perpetrate a culture of thuggery and silence that offenders use to groom their victims and maintain control to ensure they are not brought to justice. Shouldn't all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children have the same access and standards to protection from violence and justice as every other Australian? What kind of culture insists that we impinge upon rights of individuals to freedom from violence and sexual abuse? Because my SOC culture certainly does not do this. The DFAT gender equity framework needs to be applied here, within Australia, throughout all Indigenous Affairs program. Now, Marcia spoke about the COAG uh, recent national summit in reducing violence against women and children, and I am very concerned about some of the preamble and some of the recommendations in Indigenous Affairs. While I support many of the practical measures, it fails to deliver for Indigenous Australians. Some of its language is soft on violence and excuses criminal behaviour. It notes that responses to family violence in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities must recognise the impacts of trauma resulting from colonisation, racism and social disadvantage as intersecting factors in perpetrating violence. Yet, as Dr Hannah McClay, who's an Indigenous lawyer and has done her PhD on this issue, has contended any claim that violence of men against women and children is solely attributed to the impacts of colonisation unacceptably excuses these criminal behaviours and places an unfair burden upon Aboriginal women in particular. There's also another glaring failure in the Third Action Plan. It recommends cases of violence against Indigenous women and children, and Marcy's mentioned this, but I'm going to emphasise it again. 
should be dealt with, and I quote, through activities that provide support for families and encourage behavioural change without resulting to police or courts. How does this divestment of roles of the police and the courts respond to the needs of Indigenous women and children and victims of violence? Forcing victims to resolve crimes perpetrated against them without going to the police will do nothing but feed the destructive culture of silence that allows criminals to gain power over communities through fear. Non-criminal justice responses will, in all likelihood, ingrain an epidemic culture of non-reporting and further prevent victims of rape and child abuse from making contact with authorities who are trained to deal with these offences. And it's also important that at the first available opportunity, offender is placed in front of a court or is diverted under the discretion of a police officer because you can effectively track and monitor. We have systems of justice for a reason. And this is a very, very, very dangerous way of dealing with criminal offending. I could understand it if it was a minor offending, but not rape and not violence. Indigenous Australians, and in particular Indigenous women and children, deserve the same protections and freedoms from violence and sexual assault as all other Australians, no matter who the perpetrator may be and irrespective of their cultural background. If the Australian government is serious about its attempts to secure a seat on the United Nations Human Rights Council, then this issue must be addressed urgently as a matter of national importance. And appropriate measures taken need to be taken to protect victims from criminals and not deny them access to police and the courts and justice. It is only then we can ever, we can ever hope to reverse Australia's worsening statistics for Indigenous incarceration, suicide and child removal, as Jacinta, Marcia and I have demonstrated here today, it cannot fall to individuals like us to fight this campaign alone. Australia as a nation must, must take responsibility right now for ensuring that, the, our, that our human rights and freedoms from criminal violence and sexual abuse is upheld alongside all other Australians. Thank you. Thank you very much and I know everybody watching on all uh, join me in paying tribute to a bunch of women who are prepared to stand up in front of a national audience and tell some very hard tales. Um, moving now to a period of media questions, I'll exercise my prerogative before we move to the floor. Uh, Marcia, you said uh, some of the responses that we've seen from policymakers sort of reflect the drinking of the Kool-Aid. But can I, I, I just want to understand this myself. Um, uh, you've made a strong pitch for the, the legal system, the criminal justice system, to kick in in cases of family violence. 
But perhaps one of the reasons motivating the policy makers is concern about high rates of Indigenous incarceration. Yes. So how do those two things line up and, and how do we solve that problem? Well, that's right. Um, Catherine, you've got that exactly right. That there's a tension um, between a perceived uh, need to lower incarceration rates and you know, the critical need to lower violence rates. I've observed the Change the Record campaign. And when it started, it was uh, obvious to me that uh, no consideration was given in the um, public presentations of the Change the Record ca campaign to the victims of violence. I think uh, what had happened was that, um, you know, the, uh, the publicity given to the Ms Do case in Western Australia, and rightly so, was spoken, uh, was mainly emphasising the, the fact of the uh, imprisonment for non-payment of fines aspect of the case. But what is glaringly obvious to me in her case and to women who know about her case was that she was a victim of domestic violence. What, she died from injuries um, received prior to going to prison. Um, she had broken ribs. She was also treated abominably um, in custody and uh, not taken to hospital. Uh, uh, she died in, in agony from injuries received prior to going to prison. And her family have indicated that it was domestic violence, well, violence from her partner. So the Change the Record campaign speaks only about imprisonment uh, for non-payment of fines, but never mentions the domestic violence in these cases. There's no mention of all the women who've died violently. Now, if you look at the figures in the Northern Territory, the two highest categories of offences uh, for Indigenous men in prison is one, acts intended to cause injury, so that covers grievous bodily harm and other assault, and second, sexual assault. And all of the other um, offences are in much lower categories. And the Western Australian figures are pretty much the same. You'll find the same patterns in various regions of Australia. So, you know, I'm afraid that some activists have perpetuated the myth that Aboriginal men are going to jail for non-payment of, non of fines. That's simply not the case. There, we're looking at, uh, I, I think, uh, probably a rate of, you know, we were told in the Northern Territory by the police uh, that the rate of uh, offender, imprisoned offender, to the victims of an offender is um, one to three, so every offender has three victims. I think in reality, if you took in all of my figures, and sorry to be the, um, the boring statistician reporter, but if you think about those figures, in fact, it's one offender and at least 10 victims. Because most of them, well, many of them, you know, around 20%, 25% are recidivists. They offend repeatedly. And no one counts the children as victims. So it's a good question. Where are the fathers? 
Well, we know that 10,000 of them or thereabouts are in prison and we know that 35,000 children are in out-of-home care and under substantiated protection orders. So not everyone ignores that figure and then we're not even counting the women who are the victims of violence and other victims in the community. So I think the ratio of perpetrated to victim is much higher than one to three. We should push it out to the floor now. Our first question today is from the West Australian. Phoebe Wern from the West Australian. Uh, thanks very much for your three very passionate addresses. Um, this question um, is open to all of you. Um, in February, the Prime Minister, um, in his Closing the Gap statement, vowed to be guided by the wisdom and insights of uh, Indigenous people. I, I'm interested um, in your views on you know, whether Australian governments are doing enough to um, ensure that uh, Indigenous people are involved in um, you know, de the development of policy and programs uh, to tackle issues um, facing the Indigenous population and um, what evidence is there on the ground of governments um, taking the approach that the Prime Minister spoke about? Josephine, perhaps start, given your role. Yes, I've had some um, recent experience with that. Um, I guess Marcia spoke about a national network we'd set up and we have a monthly teleconference. I am currently quite frustrated at the lack of progress. I'm quite disappointed. I had more to put in my speech, but I couldn't, um, couldn't take up all the time and I had to wait for your answers. I have, on a number of occasions, put up recommendations and I don't think there's an appetite to truly listen, particularly in the violence safe communities area. It may be a result of so many ministers having some form of responsibility on this issue. We've got the Minister for Social Services, the Minister for Women, we've got PM&C, the Attorney-General's Department to some extent, and Justice. And Indigenous Affairs. And Indigenous Affairs. The inaction is very distressing to many Aboriginal women and men in this area. And there is a very clear example that has been covered extensively recently with Charlie King. So when 18 months ago I became the chair of uh, a, a subcommittee, the Safe Community Subcommittee, they told me I didn't have any resources. So um, I went to some corporates, KPMG, and they helped me set up a men and women's group. We went through a lot of different policy suggestions. And it came out that everybody was clear they wanted to support Charlie King's No More campaign. So with that and getting some uh, total consensus on that, um, we then went to see the seven head CEOs of the Sporting Codes. They said to me, you've got to talk to White Ribbon and Our Watch and work out whether they want to support Charlie King's No More campaign. So Marcia came to a meeting with Our Watch and um, No More CEOs and they agreed. We got a joint statement of intent after it, which was quite a feat because there, there are even politics in domestic violence services, um, which is unfortunate sometimes. But Subsequent to that, uh, we presented to the former Prime Minister, Prime Minister Tony Abbott, and he actually said, I want to say no more in Parliament, in Parliament. Bill Shorten agreed. Um, I've re-approached the Prime Minister in his new term and there's been complete silence. And 
um, actually so, recently... So, sorry, yes. Josephine, what, what specifically have you put to the Prime Minister? Well, we put a proposal together and it was, it was all based on where Charlie King thought he could move this campaign and uh, that all the parliamentarians link arms in, in solidarity um, at Parliament House and make a firm commitment to say no more to domestic violence. He feels that this will show the national leadership and send a message out to the communities and he's hoping that this will be done before Christmas this year. So um, we've been... Uh, I've been lobbying. I've met a lot of ministers and advisers through this time, but I I'm unfortunately um, don't see that perpetrating through in terms of practical responses in policy. And it's clear, and I wasn't actually invited to that um, COAG summit in Brisbane um, as the chair of the Safe Communities Subcommittee, but it's clear from that that they're definitely not listening to the advice of our network, and we've got many women and men in this room today who are part of that national network, so I'm acting upon advice of colleagues in the field. They're not... It's clearly they're not listening. That's the answer. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> the Australian. Hi, Stephen Fitzpatrick from The Australian. Um, Marcia, you... We have... We have as recently as today, and you mentioned the words of um, uh, the Deputy Chair of the Productivity Commission, the increasing evidence, as it were, of a lack of evidence in what works and what programs work, and the seeming unwillingness and, and inability to make that the focus of policy, of actually throwing money at things that are evidence-based. I'm just wondering, Marty, your thoughts, but all three of you, really, on how has it got to this? We've known for a very long time, anyone who's worked in the sciences, of the importance of evidence and why it's, it should be the ground point. How have we got to this point, and, and is it perhaps simply governments and policymakers find it easier to wheel out statistics about remote work for the dole schemes uh, and about, you know, the hasty imposition of royal commissions, not to um, sort of denigrate the call for a royal commission, but perhaps it can be easy sometimes for governments to call for inquiries and reports and royal commissions rather than the important work of, of working out what works. Good question, Stephen. So the Productivity Commission tells us today that... 24 out of a 1,000 programs have been evaluated. Um, that's shocking by any standard. Um, and so that tells us that not only is there no evaluation, there's, there's no evidence and there's no policy. Um, so Indigenous Affairs is a policy-free environment because policy means, you know, the word means that you have evidence for taking a particular approach, or it's meant to in our tradition of politics. Um, and why do we not have policies based on evidence? I honestly cannot answer the question. I'm, I'm as astonished as the Deputy Chair of the Product Productivity Commission and the readers of Sarah Hudson's report. She found exactly the same some time ago. Um, it, it's... Uh, an appalling fact of government administration of Indigenous affairs. Can I, I just want to make a point that I think as a society in general, uh, there is this lack of um, ability to constructively criticise anything Aboriginal, anything Indigenous. Uh, 
One thing that Aboriginal people are encouraged to do is to maintain their culture, if they, if they still have their culture, is to maintain it unchanged and not evolve like the rest of humanity. And along with this is the lack of actually self-reflection, of uh, the ability to question ourselves and for our peers to ask questions of us. There's a lack of constructive criticism across the board in so many different areas of our society with regard to Aboriginal people and that needs to stop. Our leaders need to be held to account just like everybody else in this country, just like we hold to account all our politicians, all our non-Aboriginal politicians. We need constructive criticism. We need to be able to do what the West has had the privilege to do for so long through constructive criticism. Thank you for that, ABC. Uh, Dan Conifer from the ABC. Um, thank you all. Josephine, firstly, uh, you said that, um, that the Prime Minister Turnbull hadn't listened to you in regards to family violence. Is, is that something you've experienced on uh, other issues in your role on the PM's advisory council and um, that question to the other panellists as well? Has the federal government or the Turnbull government listened to what you've said to them about uh, Indigenous affairs issues? I've been getting a lot of calls lately from a wide source who say, who are from a wide source of different Aboriginal people across the sector who say that um, the PMO is not responding to anybody at the moment and that's sort of, and I'm not sure what's happening with Indigenous Affairs, but certainly um, it seems that it's stalted. Um, there isn't a clear, um, as Marcy has set down, policy objective. They don't seem to understand the high rates of Indigenous violence against Indigenous women, although the rhetoric's there, you know, the, the, the media's there when we're doing this national plan, but um, Aboriginal people want to see policy position, um, want to have... Uh, many people, I think, want to have conversations with Malcolm Turnbull. Our last Indigenous Advisory Council meeting was cancelled and I'm not sure what's happening. We haven't been advised. Marcia and I haven't had a response to our letter sent a month ago to him. Um, and I must say, um, give Bill Shorten credit because he responded within four hours of us sending a letter around the support of the No More campaign. So I, I hope that answered the question. There are some people in the coalition who are very active and very concerned about this, including Minister Ken Wyatt, um, who does a lot of stuff in the community and really has a good relationship with Aboriginal people. So there are some people in the coalition, I'm sure, who are um, trying to represent um, different views, but it's too slow. People's lives are at risk and it's time to actually um, uh, match the rhetoric with action. Well. In answer to your question and also Stephen's earlier question, I think really it has to be said that if you look at the trends in how the uh, Indigenous Advancement Strategy funds have been spent over time, there's a trend to a larger proportion of it going to non-Indigenous, non-government organisations and less to Indigenous organisations. And as you can see, not on the basis of any evidence, but a preference for non-Indigenous NGOs, particularly church groups, such as you know 
Mission Australia, the Anglican Church, and the list goes on and on, and even sporting clubs. So, uh, look, I'm not denying that some of them might be doing a good job, but we wouldn't have any evidence of that. However, that political preference for funding to go to them rather than to the Indigenous sector tells us something about a, you know, a quasi-policy stance. So, you know, there's that hardened old view that the Indigenous sector's incompetent and the, uh, the white NGOs can do better. Well, actually, as you can see from the figures, things are getting much, much worse. Child removal rates have increased, you know, well, have gone up by 10%. There's no shift in the violence rates. The incarceration rates are worse. The suicide rates are going up. So actually the evidence is telling us that that strategy is not working. I think also it has to be said that there's a three-pronged approach. Well, that's not a policy. You know, you can say you've got three goals in an election, but, you know, after you're elected, you have to have some actual policies. Well, increasing school attendance, and doing this and doing that, that's not policy. You know, they're goals, they're simple goals. So um, I think there's a widespread alarm in the Indigenous service delivery sector at the lack of policy and at the disregard for the evidence from the Indigenous sector as to what works and doesn't, and also a disregard for the innovations proposed, you know, based on good practice elsewhere in the world, and, you know, in good practice in um, the development and aid sector, in the private sector. So, for instance, just one example is the Empowered Communities proposal. Um, that looks to me like very sound policy. And, uh, you know, if, and, and, and it, it, at its core is an evaluation and monitoring um, model, uh, uh, quite rigorous. Um, it's, it seems to me that that's an absolutely essential way to proceed. But we've heard nothing in the public domain. I mean, the empowered communities approach might be, you know, crawling along with, with some money, but has anybody told us that it's been adopted as, as a policy approach? No. So this is a very disturbing trend. And the more disturbing fact is we're over time, but we're going to have one more question from uh, Canberra IQ. Uh, Simon Gross, Canberra IQ. Um, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a, with, with a, with a aid economist about 20 years ago. He said there's an inverse proportion between the amount of money spent on an Indigenous population and their wellbeing. And he was talking globally. I think what you've characterised here today in very good uh, presentations shows that. But you've all, you've, you know, you've, you've called for a Royal Commission. You've, you've been talking about empowering the community's blah, blah, blah um, uh, programs. Um, COAG failure, the PC thing saying that, it's all, that nothing works. I put it to you that government stuff is a dead end and the solution is grassroots. What chance? I think that that comes down to cultural reform. I think that um, 
where I where I'm at is at a grassroots level and beginning with my own family to try and change the way that they think and behave in terms of family violence and the acceptance of family violence. And it's getting uh, women and men in your communities and in our families to understand that there is another way of living your life. And the best people to assist us in moving forward with that is our fellow Australians. Um, we can't expect government to solve our problems. We have to come up with solutions as well. And that requires all of us working together and the ability to recognise that in our culture which is detrimental to us and supports family violence. Uh, changing laws. I come from a very traditional background. My, my mother is former Territory Minister Best Price. My grandparents didn't see white people until they were in their early adolescence. And so I've understood traditional culture and the law that governs my people and I understand that within those laws, is there, those laws deny human rights, the rights for women and children to live in safety. And these are the laws that a lot of the old people, the old men, some of those being perpetrators in communities have held on to, to maintain their power. These are the men that are threatening my family when I get up and I speak. And the more we can protect our women so that they can come forward and speak about this, the more you will start to see that change at a grassroots level. And the more that we can begin as a country to work together to find the solutions for this problem. We absolutely have to take responsibility, Aboriginal people. This is a huge problem for our community and we have to take responsibility for it. We can't use, uh, we can't keep pointing outward and blaming our government and blaming the non-Indigenous people of this country for our problems. We have to take ownership of them before we can actually see changes happen. While I agree with Jacinta, uh, if you're living in a community where you're worried about your safety and where there's violence all the time, it may be difficult if you're the subject of violence to get your child to school every day. It may be difficult for you to go and get a job. Law and order is the state's responsibility. We don't have in this country a separate criminal justice system for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This is a fundamental human right. This is the base that everybody should expect in this country. It's, there's a flaw there. Yes, there are programs that work and we need evaluations, but as a fundamental right in a democratic country, people, the state needs to respond to victims of crime. It is not, an, in that respect, it is not an Aboriginal problem. Police work with, on, with several different groups. They get training to work with Middle Eastern crime. Um, they get specialist training. These are the sort of practical me measures we have suggested to government they support and ones which they have not followed up with us on. And it's very disappointing. And we have actually can't talk about programs. We've actually got to talk about, well, what are the fundamentals? If someone is being bashed and risking being murdered or raped, 
They are entitled in this country to expect the police to attend, to be protected from the offender, to go through an open court system. And at the moment, the emphasis in our public debate is all around the offender. That's what we were talking about to you today, a fundamental human right that we should be protected by the law as every other Australian. And I don't think that any that, that should be clear to everybody. Well, hopefully but we as a taxpayer, you should be concerned that programs uh, for which there is no evidence are being funded. Yeah, so, you know, the government is involved. Now, I've talked about some programs that do work. We know they work. They have been evaluated. Um, we're supporting Charlie King's No More campaign. Um, and these are grassroots community efforts, and we're supporting them. And it's m more programs like this that should be supported. We've covered masses of ground. Thank you. Join me in thanking our guests. <laughs>